If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today's podcast guest is Jan Bill. Jan is Professor of Viking Age Archaeology and Curator of the Viking Ship Collection at the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo, Norway. He's also head of the steering group for the Jellestad Ship Project, which is the first Viking ship to be excavated for many years. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, called him to talk Viking ships and to find out what's happening with the ongoing dig. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for joining us. Well, I'd like to be here. Thank you very much. So first question, uh, a simple question, uh, a stupid question perhaps, but it's my, uh, it's my role in these things to ask stupid questions. What, what do we actually mean by a Viking ship? Well, I think most people think of Viking ships as, as those long uh, raiding warships that occurred at the coasts of Europe. Um, but really, if you're looking at, at the material that we have, it's much more than that. Uh, because we have ships of many different sorts. And I think we should rather think of Viking ships as ships being built by Scandinavians, by Vikings, uh, during the Viking Age, and then look at this whole range of sea crafts uh, that was actually in use. When do we start to see craft then that we would identify as as Viking? What's What's the earliest examples that we're aware of? <laughs> Depends on when you <laughs> decide that the Viking Age begins for you. <laughs> so, uh, no, but uh, more seriously, um, the first example that we really have of something that we would call a Viking ship is uh, is probably that from 
from Salme in Estonia. Um, and unfortunately, it's not very well preserved. Uh, only the iron nails were still lying in the ground in the pattern that they had been in the boat. But that is a find for, which dates to around 750. And the reason that we would call it a Viking ship is perhaps mostly because it was obviously used in a Viking activity. It was filled with dead warriors who was buried in it. Um, and they had of, uh, been... Uh, on a raiding party or some mission into the Baltic and ended up on the island of, of Ursel, uh, Sarema, uh, where they died and were buried. And that's, that's a, a, a mid-8th century age, isn't it, that, uh, that we think that is? So a little earlier than our traditional Viking period starts in the UK where we think about Lindisfarne and the end of the 8th century. Yes, definitely. And I think this is one of the things that are happening within Viking uh, Viking Age research these years that we are kind of pushing the, the border uh, backwards in time. Uh, earlier, we were mainly relying on the written sources to define when this period started. And, and now we are looking more into the archaeology and we see that a lot of the things that are like defining the Viking Age, they actually start somewhat earlier in the mid-8th century. And the, the, the Salme ship burial that you mentioned there, um, that has been excavated. Is, it, is there still a lot we can learn from that? Is the excavation sort of complete and is the analysis complete of that? Or is there still a lot to, to, to learn from that? Um, oh, the, yeah, there's definitely a lot to learn still. And one of the things that really haven't been analysed yet, that is actually the ship itself. Uh, so, um, so we don't really know how it looked, and uh, it will, of course, be extremely interesting to see because that might well be the oldest uh, sailing ships that we sailing ship that we have remains of in um, in the Viking world. And you, you mentioned earlier that there are different sorts of ships, um, different craft that fall under the, the, the remit of Viking ship. Can you just very quickly give us a sense about what those sorts of ships would be? It would basically be a lot of things that we see today as well. People go out fishing, so they need a boat for that. So that's a very small ones. And then you have um, vessels which were more meant for traveling. You have to remember that uh, that was really the big mode of transportation in Scandinavia in those days, uh, because it was hard to travel over land a lack of roads and so on, a lot of uh, steep mountains, forests and so on. So really the uh, the water was the way. And so you had also vessels to travel around in and then you had, uh, of course, the, the big ships, which were perhaps mostly thought of for warfare. Uh, and towards the end of the Viking Age, we also get specialized cargo ships, which really were meant to be economical and transport goods at a, a low cost. Those those would be the canar type ships, is that is that the yes, correct? That's, yep. yep. That's right. So just thinking, uh, I suppose, you know, the traditional views of these of these big, scary Viking longships that are used for, for raiding purposes and and, uh, and sending uh, uh, armed warriors around the place. What particular, if anything, was unique about those ships? Were they better than ships available to other peoples in the in the North Atlantic at this period? Oh, we like to think that they are. 
In fact, we don't really know it because uh, very little is preserved of ships from, from other uh, areas uh, from that time. Um, but what we do know is that uh, the Scandinavian ships were built uh, in a tradition uh, which um, we can follow several centuries backwards in time. And at that time, it was specialized rowing ships. Uh, so they did not use the sail. Um, they were only propelled by oars. And this, of course, meant the huge incentive to, to build them as light as possible because then they were easier to row. And, um, and this is actually exactly what we see uh, also with the Viking ships, that compared to ship remains from, from other parts of Northern Europe, uh, they are very lightly built, uh, and they are, uh, for that reason, speedy. Uh, they are easy to pull up on a shore. Uh, they don't need a lot of harbor constructions. Uh, you can take them up rivers. You can take them over land if need be. Uh, so we really think that that was perhaps the main secret behind the Viking ship, that they were so so light that they could be used for a lot of things. And when did they start using sail power then? When did that become more important? Well, probably it started in, in Scandinavia, uh, somewhere in the perhaps late 7th, uh, at latest in the 8th century. Uh, and then it, it spread probably from, from south toward north. Um, and we can see that we still find specialized rowing ships in, uh, in Norway uh, up in towards the end of the, um, of the 8th century, at a time where definitely uh, also sailing ships were moving around. And, and presumably for the longer voyages, for the, the voyages crossing uh, from Scandinavia to uh, Britain, for instance, it would have been a combination of sail power and oar power that, uh, that got them across. Yes, uh, the question is, of course, when they did start to sail directly across the North Sea. Um, it's kind of a, a challenge to do that in an open rowing boat. So maybe uh, they only did that uh, as they started to, to use sail. Uh, the alternative is, of course, to travel along the, the coast of the North Sea. Um, and uh, there were good reasons for doing that, because that would also bring them uh, down to, and in contact with one of the most viable trading networks in, in Northern Europe. So for a pirate, that wouldn't be a bad place to go. Um, now, just in terms of making them, do, I mean, there's been lots of work done in uh, in museums, uh, including your, the ones you've worked in, uh, sort of reconstructing uh, Viking ships and trying to see how they worked. Um, what do we know about the process of actually building these craft uh, back in the Viking period? Um, presumably, they didn't have designs and plans that they were that they they were modelled on. So, was it just um, uh, design experience handed down from? carpenter to carpenter, shipwright to shipwright. What, what, what have we learned? I think that is one thing that we are certain of, but we can also say that this was not special for the Vikings. This was basically how shipbuilding was done uh, back in those days. Um, but what we do see when we're looking at the ways that uh, Viking ships have been built is that they have been uh, extremely carefully built. Uh, so they have a really a, a very strong aesthetic sense, a very strong uh, 
uh, idea about quality uh, and um, that's probably telling us that it was very much the same people who was in control uh, of uh, shipbuilding over generations. Uh, so it was a very tr traditional thing to be a boat builder and it would uh, proceed in the family most likely. Uh, and in that way you would uh, collect experience, um, rules of thumb, uh, a lot of different knowledge over generations and it would be in so to say living in the master boat builder uh, and passed on to the next generation uh, over time of course there were some means to control um, the shape of the hull that you were constructing uh, you would probably be using uh, sticks or uh, ropes with marks on or things like that in order to to record and preserve essential measurements uh, so that you could replicate them in the next uh, vessel that you were building um, but uh, it was really very much dependent on uh, on what was stored in the head of the uh, of the master ship builder so presumably the master ship builder would have been a, a person of some importance in the in the local society he must have been very important, yes, uh, because the ships were so important. And uh, uh, the fact that we see that ships are so carefully built um, indicates that they were very important to people. Uh, they were willing uh, to invest uh, a lot of resources in, in making the ship not only functional, but also making it uh, having lines that run uninterrupted uh, to have uh, decorations on them and so on and so forth. So we've had quite a few years now of, of researching and analysing and looking at real examples of, of Viking ships that, that have been discovered. Um, what, what have we learned about the likely experience of being on board one of these ships um, in the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries. Um, presumably an uncomfortable um, journey would have been the first thing. <laughs> yes, I think uh, actually the first thing that you would experience when you went on board, uh, that was probably the smell. Uh, you would, uh, of course, have all this tar all around because tar was used in order to uh, to conserve and, and uh, protect the wood, but also parts of the rigging and so on. Uh, so if the ship was freshly tarred, it would be very sticky and that would get on your clothes and in your skin and everywhere. Um, and you would, of course, smell it very well. Um, you would probably also smell some unidentifiable rotten smell and that would be the fat that is being used in the sail in order to to help make it uh, more windproof uh, that was necessary to do that and uh, uh, but it, but it doesn't really smell good <laughs> so so you would probably be happy that you was outdoor all the time as you are on a viking ship because there is no place to go indoor um, so this, of course, also means that you're exposed to the weather. Uh, you get wet when it rains and hot when the sun shines. Um, 
And then you probably also experienced that it was pretty cramped on board um, because ships were expensive and especially for warships. I mean, the whole idea was to to try to transport as many people as possible in, in one unit because that is what, what would make it uh, efficient as a weapon. Uh, so you'll probably be quite close to your neighbor uh, and you would try to find a place to have your stuff with you, uh, your uh, rain clothes and so on and so forth. Uh, so probably it would be not very much like being on a, on a modern sailing boat, but uh, a rather cramped, cold and smelly experience. And if you wanted to sleep, presumably you just sleep where you sat? Uh, well, you would lay down, I suppose. Um, and we do believe that that's actually sleeping bags were an important part of the uh, uh, of the equipment that you would bring with you. Of course, not a modern one, but perhaps one made of skin uh, to keep you reasonable, dry and, and warm uh, along the way. So, at least what we see from uh, from the experiments that we have been making, uh, traveling on board uh, Viking longships uh, across the North Sea and with people sleeping on board, that is that um, there are just people lying everywhere. Um, and uh, and going to the toilet, I imagine that would involve a bucket. For safety, you would. Perhaps prefer to do it in a in a bucket on board and not trying to to hang over the uh, the gunwale. Uh, I suppose that that Vikings didn't want to to drown either. What actually? What do we know about Vikings' propensity for swimming? Did, were, were were the people sailing these ships able to swim? Do we have any evidence of that? Well, we do have a few mentions in, in sagas, uh, but that's more of the type that this this king was such a sporty person and he was a very good swimmer and things like that. Uh, whether it was some thing that, you, that a lot of people could, we really don't know. I would suppose that people living along the coast uh, in places where the water was not too cold they would probably learn to swim as in their youth, playing around. Um, but that a lot of people who came from from the inland areas, they would not uh, have that skill. And uh, and there's also a, a facet to it that that the sea was not just a natural thing as it is for us today. For the Scandinavians at that time, the sea was populated. I mean, the uh, basic idea in, in Norse mythology is that there is this huge serpent which uh, lies around the world in the sea. And, um, and of course, that meant that the sea was dangerous. Uh, there were hidden dangers in the deep, so maybe you didn't even want to go into the water for that reason. 
Now, you're an expert in Viking ships, so I imagine you have been on one of these reconstructions at, uh, at once or twice in your career. I've been to Roskilde and I've, I've seen the ships there and I remember the, the, the smell very distinctly. Um, have, have, you, have you sampled uh, actual sailing or rowing on these ships? Well, I've actually been part of building uh, a couple of them uh, many years ago. And of course, I have been sailing also, but I'm not the most skilled Viking ship sailor in the world, I have to, <laughs> to admit that. Uh, but yes, uh, and I could say the, the experience has for me only been positive, apart from seasickness, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, it's a it's a great feeling uh, sailing on board one of the ships, and and one of the things that you experience when uh, when the, the ship gets up speed and and uh, moves along quickly, that is actually that that the whole uh, hold starts to shake a little bit, uh, and, and that's a very 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 vibrant feeling you have the really the impression that now you are running right on uh, as quick as the ship can go through the water. Uh, that's fascinating. Mm, sounds sounds exhilarating. Mm. So, so look, one of the things that I think is really interesting, um, just for, uh, which I hadn't really thought about before I did a bit of reading about this, is, is what we can um, imagine or learn from the very fact that these ships were built, what it tells us about the society and economy um, that was behind it. And I'm thinking of, you know, one example would be the uh, the number of sheep that you would need to, to to have sufficient wool to make a sale. For instance, it's been estimated some wildly enormous number of sheep is required. Um, are, are we are we learning a lot now about the the level of resources that would would have gone into making these ships and what it tells us about um, the society that uh, that sat around it? I think that's one of the big results of uh, the experimental archaeological work during the last decades that has has been made. Um, that we we now know uh, much more about the amount of materials, the amount of work hours, uh, which is going into uh, to one of these ships, and that gives us a perspective on the Viking Age that we didn't have before, um, and. It is really quite impressive amounts that that you uh, that you need. You mentioned the, sh- the sheep. I mean, uh, about sixty sheep for producing enough wool for a uh, for one sail for a, a large warship. Um, you would also need perhaps some fifteen big trunks of oaks, uh, tree trunks about a meter in diameter or something like that in order to produce all the planks and so on and so forth. You would need um, perhaps a couple of hundred kilos of iron. You would need uh, a lot of tar. You would need a lot of rope and so on. Uh, So of course, this was really major investments. Um, And I think one of the most fascinating things to see is uh, how both the ships themselves evolves, changes during the Viking Age, uh, becomes larger, uh, larger cargo capacity and so on. Uh, But we also see how the the expeditions made with these ships also changes in character uh, from being 
like small raiding parties moving along the coasts, um, uh, making surprise attacks at different places, uh, quickly disappearing again, uh, up to large uh, fleet operations uh, involving uh, more than a hundred ships, or in the most magnificent case, of course, uh, William's conquest of, of England involving a thousand ships. Um, we're really looking at, uh, at, at very, very big uh, undertakings, uh, which means that a lot of, of power, a lot of resources must have been concentrated at the hands of, of those who decided to, uh, to carry these uh, uh, operations through. <clears throat> so what we really see with the, uh, with the ships and how they are being used, uh, that is the contour of societies that are becoming more and more um, uh, hierarchical um, and where more and more resources and power is concentrated in, in the hand of a few people. When that is said, of course, um, this took many different uh, forms and uh, there's much evidence pointing to many of these uh, fleet operations actually being uh, not really with one clear leader. Its uh, participation is more like, oh yes, let's go on this uh, plundering or this uh, this trip together and I bring my ships and you bring yours and, and uh, let's go and make some money. <laughs> so. So it was. It's not always uh, a king who is requesting his um, subordinates to participate. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. We have to remember that the ships were like the cars of the Viking Age. Uh, that was the uh, the main tool for traveling around in very very many situations. Uh, and yeah, you could try to imagine that you should describe the history of uh, car development uh, with only five examples today. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Right. 
So now, now we've had a, a bit of an overview of, of uh, Viking ships and what we know about them so far. Could we could we move on to chat about uh, this this recent find um, at uh, Yellowstat, um, which uh, which you're involved with? The, the excavation is going on right now um, as we speak in in October. Um, could, could you just uh, introduce us first to to the area and how this ship was located in the first place? Yeah, then we will be going to the Oslo Fjord region that is in the southeast of, of Norway and we'll be going to the uh, to the east side of the fjord, um, uh, just some 20 kilometers south of the finding place for, for the Tuna ship, uh, one of the uh, fairly well-preserved Viking ships from Norway. And uh, what we have there is... Um, enormous burial mound um, from the 6th, 7th century, something like that. And then just in the vicinity of that, uh, an open plain where we know from earlier records that there have been several big mounds too. Uh, a few years ago, um, the farmer there wanted to, uh, to put down uh, drainage in the field and, uh, and therefore um, there was made an archaeological survey and a, a geophysical survey of the region, of the area, the, the, the field. And um, what came up there was the ruins of, of these mounds which have been there previously uh, and uh, traces of some longhouses. But especially one of these mound ruins were, was extremely interesting because there was a very, very clear shadow of a ship in that one, uh, and it was not a small ship either. This uh, shadow was uh, was more than 19 meters long. So <clears throat> it was very clear uh, from that evidence without digging even a, a single square meter, uh, we could say that this has to be a ship burial uh, of the same character as, as those that we know from Gokstad and Ulseberg and, and Tuna, as I briefly mentioned. And those other ship burials, Gokstad, Osberg, and Tuna, they are uh, the, the ships are now in 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 your care uh, in in the museum in Oslo. Yes, that's right. That's those that we have on on display uh, here in Oslo. Yes. So this was, of course, extremely exciting for everybody, and uh, we quickly decided to uh, to make a, a very very small excavation to figure out uh, what was actually preserved. Uh, of, of this find and we uh, found also on the geophysics uh, that a drainage um, pipe has been put into the ship at an early occasion. So what we decided to do was simply to dig down to that uh, pipe and empty the trench in which it had been put and look at uh, at the ship from from there because then we would not uh, destroy anything of, of the preserved ship. And so we did. Uh, and what came out of that was um, the realization that at that particular point in the, uh, in the ship burial, um, the only wood which was left was uh, the lower part of the keel, uh, which was below this drain, drainage pipe. Um, and we uh, took it up took a saw and cut off a piece and, and took it up. 
uh, to look at it and uh, learned uh, some important things. Uh, the most uh, exciting, perhaps, was that we were able to date it uh, by means of dental chronology. Uh, it turned out that it was of oak and and that uh, the oak tree from which it had been made was felled at the very earliest in 733. Um, possibly uh, it could be a good deal later because uh, the earrings were really uh, thin. So, so if uh, the shipbuilder had been axing away some earrings, then uh, they would be missing. And um, so basically we believe that, that uh, the ship could be from any date between 733 and uh, say 950 or something like that. The other thing that we learned too uh, was not so funny because that was actually that uh, soft rot was in the wood and thriving very well. Uh, and that is a very, very bad thing because soft rot is capable of destroying uh, such wood in within a very, very short span of time. Uh, so um, we were really very, very um, anxious that this might be the case here. And, uh, and so was the um, the government in Norway, so actually they decided to um, uh, to spend money to excavate uh, this ship burial, or at least the ship in the ship burial, uh, in already this year, and uh, this is what we're doing now. So, if you hadn't um, discovered that evidence of the rot, would would it have been more of a conversation as to whether it was appropriate to excavate at this stage? Yes, I think so. If we had seen that the uh, that the wood was preserved and it was safe as it is, uh, then of course it would have been a discussion because then there would not be uh, any strong need for it to be excavated right now, uh, and you could choose to wait until. Um, methods have been even better. Uh, you could choose to say, okay, we want to make this uh, research excavation, uh, but we won't do it until we have a huge pile of money and can do a lot of things at the same time and so on. <clears throat> and the same uh, would be true if uh, we had seen that everything had rotted away. So it was just the impression and nothing more that could rot away. Uh, then uh, we would probably not have been in such a hurry to do something with it. But exactly this situation with some wood left, and uh, but not for very long anymore, uh, that uh, put a lot of pressure on, on the situation. So, so the plan is now to excavate the entire uh, carcass of the ship uh, and, and, uh, and uh, take it all out. Is that right? Yes, what we're doing is that we are um, well, we are trying to achieve several things with the excavation. Most important is, of course, to uh, to uh, salvage the information which is there. So that means that uh, during excavation, uh, we need to make sure that we really uh, record everything which can tell us something about the burial ritual, about the ship, and so on and so forth. Uh, and then, uh, of course, a very high priority 
uh, is at also salvaging the preserved ship timbers, um, which are in the bottom. They are, of course, below everything which was put into the ship. And, um, and for that, uh, we need to, to keep them uh, waterlogged, uh, wet. And uh, and we need to uh, also keep them wet and all the time when we take them up and do the documentation and bring them in for conservation and so on. But then, of course, there are all the parts of the ships which have rotted away, and uh, that's much more tricky with those. Uh, what we are going to do there, um, and uh, really, we have uh, decided to wait to decide what to do until we know exactly how uh, this material look, uh, if it makes any sense to try to um, to preserve the shape of the ship uh, in some way, uh, or whether we, uh, in the end, will have to simply record everything and, and uh, remove it. We don't know that yet, uh, but we are working in a manner so that we can do both. And do you expect to uh, find an, an actual burial in this ship? Do you think you'll find a body? Uh, I'm not sure that we will find a body, and that is because the um, uh, the burial have apparently been um, disturbed at several locations, and one we know of historically that was shortly before 1880. At that time, the mound which had been covering the uh, the ship. Uh, burial um, was removed by the uh, by the farmer, uh, and uh, there are reports that the farmer also found some things and took out pieces of the ship and put them into the barn and things like that. And we do see very clearly uh, some of the places where it has been ducked down in in recent time. Um, then we also see that there is another. Uh, what is possibly another plundering um, that has taken place perhaps at a much earlier date. Um, and that is encompassing most of the uh, area where the, um, uh, the central burial have been. Uh, so there's a, there are the, ch the chances are that, that most of what was there in that area has been uh, destroyed. <clears throat> but we'll see that when we uh, get down further. Uh, and I'm sure that in the bottom of, of this ship, we'll find uh, layers which are basically undisturbed. Uh, and then uh, we'll see how much have ended up down there. One of the things that we have been finding uh, within the last uh, week or so, that is... Uh, the skeleton of a big mammal, probably a horse, uh, lying within the central burial area. Um, might have been inside even a, a burial chamber there. And uh, that is, of course, very good because that shows us that at least some skeletal remains can survive to some extent. Mm. And what else have you found so far? You've, you've made some interesting nail findings, I think. Yeah, as we are digging down uh, into the ship from, from the top, then uh, it becomes increasingly better preserved. Uh, and one of the th 
most recent finds is that we have started to find the the big iron nails, which are basically fastening the the top of the frames timbers, um, floor timbers we call them, uh, to the uh, uh, to the side of the ship, exactly at the transition between the bottom and and the side, uh, and we are very happy about that because that's like a key point to identify in order to understand the construction of the ship. Uh, and now we we know that we can expect to find these nails uh, along both sides on, on that level. Um, that will give us a, a very good impression of how the ship originally looked. So, so that is really important. So we have um, we have got evidence of some of these uh, ship burials already from the from the the craft we mentioned earlier, Gokstad, Osberg, and, and uh, Tune, for instance. Um, what um, what what more are we going to learn from this ship, or what are you most excited or hopeful that we might learn? Hmm. Well, if it is if it turns out to be a really early uh, grave. Uh, dating back to the 8th century, uh, then of course it will be immensely exciting to see if this is a sailing ship or not. Um, if it's a later uh, date that comes out in the end, <clears throat> then uh, it would not be surprising to find a sailing ship there, uh, but it would be interesting to see uh, how it relates to the other ships uh, that we know of from that time. We have several ship finds from from Western Norway, uh, the Osberg ship was built there. Uh, we also have some ship remains from from uh, Karmøy uh, on the west coast, uh, and then we have several ships which have been built in Eastern Norway, uh, as the Gokstad ship and the Tsuna ship. Uh, now it will be very exciting to see if if uh, this ship can actually help us to learn more about regional differences uh, or functional differences in how the Viking ships were being built. We have to remember that um, the ships were like the cars of the Viking Age. Uh, that was the, uh, the main tool for traveling around in very, very many situations. Uh, and yeah, you could try to imagine that you should describe the history of uh, car development uh, with only five examples today, that would be very, very difficult. And it's the same thing with the Viking ships. We have very few uh, compared to all the uh, variants that we expect uh, to be. But I think there's a completely different angle on on, on this um, uh, Yellowstar uh, ship burial that uh, is as important, and that is to... Uh, this is the first time that we are really excavating a monumental ship grave uh, for a hundred years. And uh, this is uh, with all the um, developments that have taken place in archaeology uh, since the last time. Uh, we can do so much more in order to document uh, and analyze uh, the actions that took place during the burial. Uh, so we can get much, much closer to actually understanding the, the burial ritual and uh, the question why on earth uh, people at that time choose to make these uh, very, very big, very, very expensive uh, burials.
and that obviously a, a fascinating question that um, that would be really good to answer. I suppose just um, wrapping up a bit now, thinking about fascinating questions. I wonder. Um, you must speak to members of the public an awful lot about Viking ships and field some um, some uh, some curious questions and some very common questions. I wonder what what are the most uh, commonly asked questions about Viking ships that uh, that you have to answer. <laughs> well, the most common one is, is it real? And that's a question I get from people who just comes into uh, to the Viking ship museum and see the Oseberg ship in front of them. And they just don't believe that this is really from the Viking Age. They think this, this must be something that has been built up in modern times. It's not. It is original. So I think that's, um, that's a, a very, very common. And then, uh, of course, people are interested in, in many different aspects. But many of them is uh, about how would it be to be on board um, uh, what was it like? And uh, I think that uh, is easy to understand because this is really um, the way that we can relate to that kind of, of finds ourselves. How was it actually to be sailing on one of these vessels? How was it to see such a ship coming towards the shore where you were standing? Uh, that fascinates people. Professor Jan Bill, thank you very much for your time. That was a, a fascinating conversation and uh, and we, we look forward to hearing more about the Yellowstad um, uh, excavations. When when do you think um, there might be more uh, more information coming? I guess all the time as the as the dig progresses, but when when's it supposed to be concluding? When's it when's it going to be done by? At the moment it looks like we are going to excavate um, in to December, uh, something like that. And uh, and then we uh, will hopefully be able to to take up the timbers uh, from in December and uh, start the study of them. And uh, the knowledge that we are getting from this uh, excavation, it's, it will not stop coming by uh, by end of December. It will continue uh, through research during the, the coming years. And I guess the, the plan and hope is that it might be uh, uh, something that could be displayed as part of this new museum that you're developing in Oslo as we speak? Well, definitely this, the story about the Yellister ship will be part of the new museum. In what form, we'll have to see. Depends on how much is preserved, I guess. That was Yarn Bill. If you want to find out more about the Vikings, enter that into the search bar on our website at historyextra.com. And don't forget that if you enjoyed this conversation, then be sure to head over to historyextra.com forward slash Viking 5 to read the things that everyone should know about Viking ships, according to Professor Bill. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow to hear about the experiences of black people in the Second World War. 